Thanks so much to Catherine Tucker Windham, who was speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on November 30th, 2021. Thanks to all of you watching and listening, and especially to those here in our live online audience. We're really glad to have you. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to share their first person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. We are so happy to be here with you, even on Zoom still. We have some suggestions for making the most of the online format. We really do believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners. So here are some ways that you can help us to keep that as part of the show. So if you do keep your video on, you can have big physical reactions to really connect with the rest of the audience and the tellers. Um, for instance, let's cheer. Let's cheer for our tellers. Everyone cheered. Yeah, like that. You can also express your reactions in the chat box, which we do save and share with the tellers later, and also put questions you have for the tellers in the chat that occur to you. Um, after all the stories are done, we will do a little bit of, of Q&A. So our theme for tonight is transformations. Our tellers are Erica Blumfield, David Frainer, and Mio Yamauchi. Pat Spaulding will be our MC, introducing each teller to you. So join me in a big visual welcome for Pat. Pat! <laughs> Thank you. Good evening, everyone. First up, we have Erica Blumfield from Los Angeles, California. She's a writer and storyteller who teaches creative writing to elementary school children. And after graduating from NYU with degrees in writing and acting, living in New York City, she wrote and performed solo shows and was the singer and songwriter in an indie pop rump, <laughs> punk band <laughs> titled um, Rayographs. Rayographs. Well, anyway, there's a it was, a, it was a hot band. Erica moved to Los Angeles and began performing her true and personal stories on various stages, including the lab at the famed Hollywood Improv and at Victory Center Theater in Backstory. Since the pandemic, she has shared her stories on Zoom shows produced all over the country, including on This Much Is True and Bridgeport Pachacacha, Volume 11. In her stories and in her life, Erica is dedicated to bringing awareness to mental health issues in order to help break the stigma and offer hope. Tonight, she'll tell us about a time when everything was not as it seemed in La La Land, when reality threatened her chances of the happy Hollywood ending she longed for. Let's hear more in her story, The Harbor. Erica? Thank you. 
1993 and I'm 17 years old and all my dreams are coming true. I'm accepted to NYU. I put my dysfunctional family behind me and I move from Philadelphia to Manhattan, determined to become a Broadway star. I received a piece of advice from a veteran New Yorker. They told me in New York City, be like an exclamation point, not like a question mark. I took this advice to heart and I set forth on my New York journey with excitement and enthusiasm and without doubt. And it wasn't long before it all began to pay off. I was cast in the most esteemed play festival in the country. I shot a short film in Amsterdam. I was having meetings with agents and managers and casting directors. And I was on my way. But then, after almost a decade of pursuit, I found myself stuck in almost making it. And I was getting older, and my opportunities and my self-esteem and confidence were drying up. My boyfriend at the time, who I loved with every ounce of my being, his career had begun to take off. He was a drummer in an indie rock band, and I was happy for him, but it was hard because he was my main emotional support as I was estranged from my family. But then, just when all seemed lost, I was cast as the star of a reality television show. And the executive producers were Madonna and Oprah. My life was being filmed and broadcast 24 hours a day live. I was very dedicated to delivering compelling television. I stood on street corners and preached about defeating evil political agenda. And I pushed a shopping cart all around the city filled with trash that I had collected. And with this trash, I was going to build a huge art installation called Hoot Hoot, Don't Pollute. And I remember exhausted, lying down in the middle of a heavily trafficked intersection, crying out to the director, cut, I can't take it anymore. Cue the extras. I'm too tired. Because see, I wasn't on a reality show. I was in the middle of a bipolar episode and the reality show was a figment of my psychosis. I lost my job, ran out of money, my boyfriend left me not understanding, and I was evicted from my apartment. A friend who lived all the way in Los Angeles offered for me to come stay with her, not realizing the full extent of what was going on with my mental health. And so I flew out to Los Angeles, still expecting the red carpet to be waiting for me. Soon after my arrival in LA, my friend found me crying, devastated over the breakup, having taken a fistful of tranquilizers and washed it down with a bottle of wine. I was saying that I wanted to die, 
she rushed me to the hospital where I was hospitalized for two weeks, my mood still bouncing high and low. When a social worker helped arrange for me to stay at a longer term facility for the homeless with mental illness, it was called the harbor. The harbor, a metaphor, I suppose, shelter from the raging rainstorm that was my madness. We had social workers on site and group therapy and one-on-one -on -one therapy and a psychiatrist, and we learned medication management and how to accept our diagnosis. And they took us on outings to the Hollywood Boulevard to see the Walk of Fame and to see movies. And we had chores like cooking for the other residents. On this one night, and I was improving from all these services, but let me tell you, it is very depressing finding out you're not famous. So on this particular night, it's my night to cook and it was shopping night to go to the market. Harriet, one of my favorite caretakers there at the Harbor announced, it's shopping time. And we all piled into the van. I shrunk low in my seat knowing that passerbys would see us all as a bunch of wackos. I was not one of those people. At the market, I grabbed the easiest things I could think of to cook for that night. Harriet encouraged me to try again, maybe pick out something more special. And so I pushed my shopping cart through the market, sane enough now to know what to use the cart for. And feeling nostalgic, I filled my cart thinking of the feasts I used to make for my boyfriend and friends back in New York. And when I got back to the harbor, I flipped on the radio station and I danced and I sang about to the oldies as I chopped and I diced and the garlic sizzled in the pan and the sauce thickened in the pot and the peppers and eggplant roasted to perfection. I was making penne della casa, a penne of the house, a dish I had learned to make eight years before at the cafe where I had worked for eight years before my mind began to unravel. I finished cooking just as the dinner bell rang and I laid out the food on the table and all the residents took their seat. But without the activity of cooking, I felt my mood sink and I looked around at all these strangers and I longed for my old life, for my friends, my friends who were having career success, getting married, having babies while I was here all alone. And mental illness felt like a death sentence. And then I heard someone clear their throat and I looked up and I saw it was Gary. Gary had a form of schizophrenia and he had been chronically homeless. And he announced, Erica, this is like a five-star hotel meal. Thank you. Gary's reaction was an awakening. I had been so focused on what I had lost. I was blind to what I had found, a new community and a second chance. It's been 17 years since I left the harbor. It wasn't a straight line. 
I set out to begin my life. I volunteered, I made friends, and I found a career I love teaching reading and writing to elementary school children. And teaching has been a lifeline for me. When I walk down the halls and the students call out, hi, Miss Erica, hi, Miss Erica, like I'm some kind of star and bound in the classroom, so eager to learn. Sure, I'm not the type of star I longed to be all those years ago. It's taken another form, one which I'm truly grateful that I see as a privilege to help my students along their journey as they discover their purpose. When I worry that I'll have another breakdown, I remember Gary and the harbor and how it had instilled an optimism within me, a rebellion against darkness and the resolve to rejoice in my recovery. And what I know to be true is that with services like provided by the harbor, people can come back from that place as I came back. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Erica. <laughs> that was a beautiful and very brave story and, and so true, it just rang so true. Thanks for sharing it. I think that um, it brought people to a place of understanding, just like you said, and, and hope. So thanks very much. Well done too. Excellent story, thank you. <laughs> Alrighty, next up we have one of our own, David Frayner from Greenfield, New Hampshire, who is part of True Tales Live production team. He coordinates the backstory, um, the interviews at the end of each of our shows. A retired Unitarian minister, David, with his wife, Lisa, who is an acupuncturist, founded Gentle Currents Wellness Center in Greenland. In addition to storytelling, his passion for poetry led him to serve for several years as co-chair of the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program and to emcee their monthly poetry hoot. David believes in the power of first-person storytelling to create connections amongst individuals and to build and sustain local communities. In tonight's story, he'll take us back to the earliest days of his ministry as he tells of a most unusual experience officiating at his almost first wedding. His story is titled, Wedding Lifer. <laughs> Come on up, David. I was sitting at my desk. I was sitting at my desk when the phone rang. It was Vic Carpenter, the distinguished senior minister at the historic First Unitarian Church in downtown Philadelphia. Vic Carpenter calling me a ministerial newbie. David, I need a favor. Well, I was just a ministerial newbie and he was Vic Carpenter. Sure, Vic. Whatever you want, I'm glad to help. Well, <laughs> well, 
Well, it's a little bit of an unusual request. I agreed to do a wedding six weeks from now. An event at church has come up that I just can't miss. Could you take the wedding for me? Now, you need to understand, I was a freshly minted minister just out of seminary. And I had just been called to my first position as assistant minister at our church in northwestern Philadelphia. This was not only my first ministry. This was my almost first wedding. I had done two weddings under supervision in graduate school, but this would be my first solo wedding. So already I was a little anxious. Okay. Well, David, it's not just that the wedding is taking place in a relatively short period of time. The groom is in prison. In prison? What for? Murder. Murder? <clears throat> yes, David, murder. But he didn't kill anybody. He drove the getaway car, and under the law at the time, he was sentenced to life in prison. But the law has changed, and the couple want to get married <clears throat> in prison on the occasion of the anniversary of the first time they met. I'll put the information to the, the, from the bride in a letter to you. This was 1976. No fax, no text, no email. I'll put the information in a letter to you. It should come in a day or two. You can call the bride, arrange to meet, plan, and do the wedding. And David, thank you so much. You're a lifesaver. And he hung up the phone. What had I just agreed to? Two days later, the letter arrived. I called the bride and arranged to meet. It turned out she lived in central Philadelphia and had no car. So I drove my 68 VW bus to her apartment. She invited me in and we sat down and she seemed nice enough. And she proceeded to explain. It turned out that the prison had a pen pal program. And 10 years ago, she had signed up to be a volunteer. They paired volunteers on the outside with inmates. And the man she was paired with, matched up to, was the man who is now her fiance. Over a period of time, their letters grew more intimate, and eventually they met and fell in love. Although, of course, there was no chance for them to be together. But they continued to write, and she continued to visit over a period of time. And then one day, he managed to escape, and they took it on the lamb out west and lived under assumed names for six years until eventually his true identity was discovered. He was rearrested and extradited back to Philadelphia where he was back in prison. This was a lot of information to take in at one time. Okay, I said, why do you wanna get married now in prison? So she continued to explain. After I got back to Philadelphia, I contacted a lawyer with legal aid. And he explained that while we were away, the law had changed. And now someone driving a getaway car could only be convicted of aiding and abetting, not murder. So no life sentence. The lawyer continued, she said, that he believed that under the circumstances, he could get my fiance's sentence reduced to time served plus two years. We were so excited with that news that we thought, you know, let's get married right away. Let's get married on the occasion of the anniversary of the first time we met. So that's how we came to this point. 
I was pretty shaken taking in all that information all at once. But I said, okay, let's plan a wedding. I had to contact the lawyer in order to meet the groom and he arranged to meet with us at the prison. The prison was located in Northeast Philadelphia and looked like a medieval fortress, like something right out of the Middle Ages. The walls were made of stone three feet thick and 16 feet high and covered with coils of razor wire. Perhaps the bride was used to something like this because she'd been there before, but I was not. I'd never been in a building anything like that. I'd never been near a building anything like that. I wasn't anxious. I was frightened, but I tried not to show it because after all, I was a religious professional. It turned out that the prison had never had a wedding before, and I'd almost never done a wedding before. So what a strange development that was. <clears throat> the lawyer and I were frisked. They brought in a matron from the women's prison to frisk the bride. The uh, Warren met us at the gate and escorted us into what they called the library for our meeting. Well, it wasn't much of a library. It was a room with a kind of beat up table in the middle and some wooden chairs around the edges. Two guards brought the groom in in shackles and he was tall and seemed handsome to me and he seemed nice. And when the bridegroom and bridegroom looked at each other, you could see the connection between the two of them. We didn't do much wedding planning with the <clears throat> warren and the uh, guards, the warden and the guards looking over our shoulders. So it was really more of a meet and greet. The bride and groom had to sign the wedding application <clears throat> and we'd agreed that the bride and groom and uh, the bride and I, not including the groom, would plan the wedding. The groom would only learn about the vows he was going to be saying on the day of the wedding. There would be no wedding rehearsal. There would be no maid of honor, no bridesmaids, no groomsmen. The lawyer would serve as best man. And so the wedding party would consist of the two of them, me, the warden, and the lawyer. On a cold day in February, I picked up the bride and we drove to the prison for the ceremony. She wasn't wearing a wedding dress, but she was dressed nicely. Again, they sent a matron over to frisk her. Imagine being frisked on your wedding day. <clears throat> the warden met us and escorted us back to the library where we assembled. The two guards brought the groom in unshackled, not wearing a tuxedo, of course, but nicely dressed, which the lawyer had arranged. The wedding took place in a large auditorium, the kind of thing you may have seen with a basketball court at one end and a stage at the other. And in the middle of this vast, basically empty space, someone had arranged a set of about a dozen wooden chairs with an aisle down the middle and a big wooden table at the head of the aisle with a Bible, a large Bible, open to a page at random and two candlesticks on either side of the Bible without candles, lit candles could be used as a weapon. So we march in our little assemblage and stand at the head of the aisle the bride, the groom, the lawyer, the warden, and me. At the back of our little island of chairs stand the two guards, and there are guards, pairs of guards at each of the four walls around the auditorium. What they thought we were going to do, I have no idea. 
I begin the ceremony. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Of course, there are no dearly beloved, the chairs are empty and my words feel empty too. But I press on, I say, do a short reading. And then I offer a homily in which I say that life is not set, not fixed in stone, probably a poor choice of words, that life is open and is full of possibilities and it is given to each of us to make the choices and live our way into those future possibilities. I say a little bit more, but that's the basic idea. Then we go on to the exchange of vows. I start with the bride instead of the groom because I wanted the groom to have a chance to hear the vows that we would, he would be saying by hearing his bride-to-be going first. She says her vows repeating after me, he says his, and then it's on to the exchange of rings, which the lawyer as best man had arranged for. They exchange rings. I declare them to be husband and wife, and the ceremony is concluded. There is no reception. The bride doesn't throw her bouquet. The bride doesn't have a bouquet. A bouquet could hide a weapon, and there is no wedding cake. For a recession, our little assemblage troops back to the library. The bride, the groom, and I sign the marriage license, and the lawyer as best man signs as the witness. The groom's not allowed to keep his ring, of course. It can be turned into a shiv. So the bride takes it with her. And as we're getting ready to go, the groom and bride kiss once more. She tells him that she loves him and she'll see him next week at visitation. And in just a brief moment, I see this wonderful connection take place between them, followed by these two huge embracing smiles. The guards take the groom away. The bride and the lawyer and I part company outside the gates. I drive the bride back to her place and then drove, drive home myself. A year later, I was called to be parish minister to a church in Michigan. I never returned to the church. I never hear back from a couple how their lives turned out. But sitting in my van outside the apartment that day, I realized I've been given a gift. At first, I was completely focused at my feeling of being so overwhelmed by being a new minister with virtually no wedding experience. And the prison just made the whole thing worse. Minister are called to be, ministers are called to be of service. And I kept wondering to myself, how could this serve any useful purpose? But then it struck me. They had taken in what I had said. They believed in my words about their possible future, even when I wasn't sure that I did. And they set about living into that future, beginning with their wedding, <coughs> sealed with their kiss, and those two huge, warm, embracing smiles. They got married in prison, but they wed for their future. They wed for life. And in ways that I could never have imagined, they taught me about the strength of the human spirit and the transcendent power of life. 
and they help me begin to understand what it means to be a minister. Thank you, David. See, it seems to me that uh, that first wedding might be like the top of all the ones that followed it <laughs> in terms of memorable experience. <laughs> there was a lot of experience packed into that one wedding. Thanks for sharing that. Um, made me want to write a, a story about prison. Not that I've got a lot of experience, but I have a little bit of experience. Thanks for putting a bee in my bonnet. Good work, David. And now for our final teller, Mio Yamauchi, love saying that name, who was born and raised in Japan and now lives in Los Angeles, brings a unique perspective and sense of humor to storytelling. During the day, she works as a computer programmer, writing narratives for computers to perform. <laughs> I like that line. But in her off hours, Mio's insatiable curiosity about life, people, and the world that we all inhabit lead her on many adventures that find their way into stories that captivate and delight. During the pandemic, after the coronavirus drastically changed our world, Mio started pondering a question. What is permanence? Tonight, she'll share her discovery in the story, Loss and Return. Mio. In March 2020, I started living as if I were retired. I stay at home and take a walk once a day. Then in one of my walks, I discovered my favorite grocery store, the kosher market. They are not in produce quality, so delightful. Even when I didn't have anything to buy, I paid a visit every day, except for Saturday when they are closed for Shabbat. Then one day in April, I, I ambled down to the store as usual and found it closed. Huh, that's weird. This is Monday, not Saturday. Why are they closed? Did anybody get sick? But it wasn't just that day. The next day and the following day, it remained closed. Google said it's open, but it's not. Did the store die? The kosher market discovery was the best thing that happened to me during the pandemic. I can't live without it. Losing the store is like my, losing my phone, which is like losing my brain. I didn't know where to shop, what to eat anymore. I didn't know what to do. So I walked to the store every single day, like a lost dog. During that week, not knowing what happened to the kosher market, I had a lot of time to think about my past and remember my past losses. In one of my family photos, I was posing in front of a shrine in Japan. I was three years old at the time. My hair was curled nicely. I was wearing a cute red flowered kimono. 
with a much hair accessory. I was adorable, except my face was covered with bloody scabs. And something was missing from my half-crying mouth, a front tooth. A few days before we took the picture, I fell off my mother's bicycle, hit the ground face first, and lost my front tooth. But that's the past. Who cares about the baby teeth? We don't own them. They belong to babies. Fast forward to six years later. I'm nine years old. I got my permanent teeth. There is a reason why we call them permanent. Today, my brother invited me to ride a bicycle with him. He got a brand new bike and I got his hand-me-down. Usually, he doesn't like to play with me because I'm a girl. I'm two years younger than him. I'm a nuisance to him. I understand, but he doesn't have a choice today because we just moved to a new town. We don't know anybody. We push our bikes to the top of the hill and ride it downhill. It's so much fun. I know, it doesn't sound like fun, but it is fun because I'm nine. After riding downhill a couple of times, my brother says, Mia, next time, don't use brakes. We are gonna get to the bottom of the hill in a blink. It's gonna be fun. Is it? Really? Even using brakes, the speed is pretty fast. But I don't wanna sound like a wimp. Sure, bring it on. We push our bikes to the top of the hill and set on the starting line. One, two, three, go. I take the lead. I'm the wind. I'm the lightning bullet. I'm fast, really, really fast. Maybe too fast. Should I use the brakes? No, that's cheating. What's the gradient? 45 degrees or 60? If I hit the bottom of the hill with this accelerating speed, what's my chance to get injured? Thousand percent. I will die ugly. He's not in my sight. He's not gonna know. I grip the brake. Wait, why am I in the air? Shoot, the rear brake is broken. <laughs> Mm. I surprised my mother with my red balloon face. It was so swollen that it took a few days for her to analyze my face. And when she did, she gasped. <gasps> Not again. Yep, my front tooth was missing. A few days after the accident, I went to the new school with bloody scabs and no front tooth. My teacher introduced me to the class. Kids, we have a new student today, Mio Yamauchi. She used to have a beautiful face. Yeah, my front tooth was not permanent after all. Is there anything really permanent? Maybe not.
after closing for a week, I learned the kosher market was closed only for Passover. I can go there again. That made me realize everything is a repetition of loss and return. I'm sure you all had a not again moment more than once. This pandemic changed our lives forever. Many of us lost somebody or someone important. They may not come back to us physically, but what we lose will come back to us eventually in one form or another. It can be a different form of love, connections, or memories. My front tooth came back to in the form came back to me in the form of a fake tooth. And the kosher market is back to business again. Life is good. A week later, I went to the store as usual, and they were closed. Not again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mio. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think the next time I use that phrase, not again, of, uh, well, at least I have all my teeth. That is, if I don't lose my tooth. Um, great imagery. I was uh, with you on that bike, kind of terrified. Darn brother, that was a bad instruction. All right, thanks, everybody. Those were some excellent stories. Now, if you have thoughts and questions, Write them in the chat because Amy will be talking to our storytellers now, and then David will follow up with the backstory uh, with Erica, I believe. All righty. Yes, David and Erica will have a 15-minute conversation, um, but we have a little time left here. So I'm going to open chat. I'm going to be looking for your questions. Um, I'll probably work a little backwards here because here's a bunch for Mio. Why don't we start with you? Let's see. Uh, Nina wants to know what, what, uh, yeah, so tell us what kind of things you were purchasing at the market. I usually buy chicken or meat or nuts. <laughs> this is the... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the audio effect I used. <laughs> and did you have a favorite new food that you discovered there or at all? I buy some snacks, but I don't remember their names. And uh, I'm hoping that some my Jewish friend can go to the market with me and explain all the food eventually. Okay. And do you still ride a bike? Uh, I have a bike, but uh, I need to, I need tune up. So I haven't ridden for a long time. Okay. I will just say as a person who had knocked out my front tooth on a, in a bike accident. <laughs> I'm not much of a bike rider either when I was 10 or so. Yeah, wow, that was so familiar. Ugh, oh, 
Um, I have one in here. Okay, so Erica, I have a question for you from Nina. She wants to know what other dishes are your favorites? I think this is, is for Erica. Am I right, Nina? Where is Nina? Yeah. Um, so what other dishes are favorites of yours to prepare for special occasions? Well, that's a good question. And when you asked that, Nina, it made me think of possibly an additional line for the story. The truth of the matter is, I am not a good cook. So Gary was being very kind. <laughs> I made it sound much better and it really had like four ingredients. But um, what do, when I, and I, you know, so... Like over Thanksgiving, I was more the activities director than the cook. So that was, yeah, that was then. Yeah. Great, thanks. Um, so David, here are a couple for you. First okay. off, first off, did you do, you know, from after that point, were there, were, have you done a lot of weddings? Has that been a big part of your your uh, ministry? Oh, gee. Yeah, yeah, I've probably done somewhere between two and 500 weddings. And do you feel like they were your whole approach? You know, how did this early one influence your approach, your experience of them, if it did? <laughs> well, you, I, could, I couldn't. I never had anything more challenging than that particular experience. Um, <clears throat> so I realized fairly quickly that I needed to understand more about the whole wedding process. Um, my parents were both in the book publishing business, so I quick hop <clears throat> went down to the bookstore to find as much written information about weddings as I could. And as it happened, some Unitarian Universalist ministers have published books of readings, things like that. So I took it on myself to try to fill the gaps that my lack of experience had led to. <clears throat> and um, on another note, David, Tom really wants to know, how sad were you when you sold your VW? <laughs> on a scale of a one, good one, old two. bus, white, classic VW bus, drove it all across the Trans-Canadian Highway and down into uh, several of the Northwestern state parks. <clears throat> I have a question. buses die. So it sounds like you, you did not sell your VW, you drove it until the end. Right. <clears throat> Faded away. Right. Um, Okay, Mio, I have a, another for you. Were there any other pandemic discoveries, you know, anything else that you feel has stood out to you as something you learned or, or gained from, you know, in the pandemic times? So the funny story is that I had to lose my front tooth again during this pandemic, so. <laughs> Because of that, I got another fun story that is titled Identity Crisis. <laughs> wow. 
so your teeth just keep giving. Okay, well, um, <laughs> we're gonna, the loss of them keeps, keeps giving, I should say. So um, we're gonna look forward to hearing that. Thank you. <laughs> How about, um, are you still shop shopping at the kosher market? Yes, I do. Okay, cool. Um, I haven't, I have one for Erica and I know I don't want to step on, on David's toes too much because I know you're going to have a conversation, but um, Pat would really like to know how long did it take before you decided to, or felt you needed to tell this story? Like a, a lot of us know that when you, something happens to you, you know, sometimes you're ready to tell it right away, but often there needs to be a certain period of time, a certain distance. What was your experience of that with this story? Yeah, it took me a very long time. Like really what happened was about eight years ago, my, uh, one of my closest friends from when I was a young actress, actually, uh, we had lost touch, but we had remained friends in New York for a while, um, showed up on my Facebook page because of the algorithm, and I'm never on Facebook, that said she had moved to a neighborhood that's adjacent to mine. And so we reconnected and she was shocked that I wasn't doing anything with the arts. Cause I, and then she was shocked when I told her the whole story. And then she was like, you have to tell this story. And I was like, I can't tell this in public. I'm going to lose my job. Like, that's just like, this will be all over the internet. Like, and she was like, you have a story to tell. This is what you had. This was always what you did. You are always a storyteller. So, cause of Uma. I started about uh, eight years ago again. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, we'd like to all send her our thanks also for getting you to, to uh, join this world of storytelling. Oh, um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Eric. No, I was going to say I can add this maybe when I talk um, privately, but there's one other friend that I'll talk about because I just realized I left her out too. It was the two of them. Okay. Great. Um, I have another one for Mio. Pat is wondering, have you been considered to be a pretty humorous person by friends and family since you were a kid? Or did you grow into it? Like, is have you always been funny and a jokester or whatever? Or is this a new part of your personality? No, I'm not really a funny person. And even with my friends, I'm a quiet person, but I know that I'm a weird, I'm weird. Yeah. So my thinking is weird and I'm obsessed. And <laughs> when I got really obsessed with Trader Joe's, I was really into the store. <laughs> yeah. I had another story about it, but yeah. So my stories are from my obsession and my weirdness that made people laugh. You, that reminds me of Nina. I remember a story in which she discovered she was weird. Isn't that, I think that's the word she used. That's great. Um, we love weird people, I guess. Um, we think you're hysterical. And then the kind of follow-up is, especially given that answer, what brought you into storytelling? How did you, you 
uh, come to this? So I started learning how to speak just to improve my English. I started learning giving a speech. And then one day I went to a storytelling show and I heard uh, some good stories and I was blown away how powerful good stories are. So I started learning how to craft a story and telling, telling a story little by little. That's great. Actually, we have um, a connection with a, a, a local a, a Seacoast, New Hampshire group of, I think it's ESOL these days, um, but people who English is not their first language and they come to our show sometimes. Maybe some of them will hear this. I don't think any of them are here now. And um, listening and, and such is one way that they're learning the language too. So that's great. It's a, what a fun way to do it. If, if someone had helped me learn French that way, I might've actually learned it back when I was in school. <laughs> um, that's so smart. I have, oh, and by the way, Tina really would love for you to keep being weird. We think it's great. <laughs> um, I have uh, one more here. Um, John is wondering, Erica, do you think that the pandemic has helped people to become more accepting and understanding of emotional issues? Well, the verdict is still out on that as far as, um, I, I hope so. It may be more relatable now. People who had misconceptions, you know, oh, you're just lazy if you're depressed or things like that. But what I will say that I learned during the pandemic is that there are, there is a huge number of people who are very empathetic and compassionate from other storytellers that I've met and people who tune in and how I've never once felt when I first started doing it on Zoom, I was like, oh boy, like no one has any background of me. They've never seen me in person. Like they may just be like really confused by this, but I was, I'm very impressed by the reception that I've gotten on uh, through the pandemic on Zoom. So that's really uplifting. That is, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, so I'm gonna be drawing us to a close here. Again, the conversation will continue specifically between David and Erica. Um, but before we get to that, I have a few other things to share with you. So um, first, just another big thank you to everyone for being with us tonight, especially our tellers and very much our live audience. Again, you are part of the show and having you here is just makes us all so happy. So thank you. Um, our next True Tales Live Zoom show is going to be on Tuesday, December 28th at 7 p.m. with the simple yet rich theme of the holidays. It's our holiday show. And we have not actually done a, December, a late December show in many years, but since it was on Zoom, we thought, eh, we can probably swing it. So December 28th, 7 p.m., you can join us, we hope. 
the link to register, just like you did tonight, is at truetaleslivenh.org. We would love to hear your stories. While our 2021 calendar is, you know, finished up here, December's fallen, um, our 2022 dates, plans, and themes have all been released now. Um, you can find them on our website and on our Facebook page. We will start off the year on Zoom for sure. We hope to, in the spring, transition to in-person shows, you know, depending on what happens. Um, but back to in-person at PPM TV in Portsmouth. But we have made the commitment that January, February, and March will be on Zoom. So those of you who are far away can, you know, rest assured you'll be able to join those shows. Um, we encourage everyone to attend one of our monthly workshops on Zoom if you're interested in telling a story. They happen from 7 to 8.30. The next one is December 7th, one week from tonight. You'll get both feedback on your story and the practice telling on Zoom, figuring out how to use it. Um, contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and just to get more information. Also on truetaleslivenh.org website, there are links to register for the workshops as well as the shows. And I'll bet for those of you here now, if you look in the chat, Kamisha is probably going to all that contact info there. She's great about that. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98 on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand or podcast. TrueTalesLiveNH.org gives you easy access to all of these options. Let's thank a few of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Bedingfield, Sam Adams, Kamisha Foley. And me, I'm Amy Antonucci. And again, before we move to the backstory, 15 minute interview with Erica Blumfield by David Frainer, we have a fun Zoom tradition that we have created. We're gonna have one minute, it's literally one minute, of moving and shaking off the Zoom cobwebs before we sit back down for the interview. So John is gonna be putting up the music and we really hope that you'll have your video on and move at least a little, even if it's just head nods. We just wanna know like you're there, right? Some of us are gonna get up and jump around. So you might wanna to switch to gallery to see all the crazy stuff going on. Those of us who are weird, this is our time to showcase it, right? So, um, John, are you, you prepping that for us? Everyone, you can prep yourselves, clear your dance space.